This week on Geek Explained, with the release of Marvel 1000 last week, we're going to take a look at my favorite Marvel story, which may be the greatest single issue from Marvel Comics of all time. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is talking Marvel Comics. Marvel is officially 80 years old this year, and to celebrate, last week they released Marvel Comics 1000, in the same vein as Action Comics 1000, Detective Comics 1000, everybody gets a 1000th issue. And uh, this issue was chock full of different stories from different creators, some one-page stories, some uh, stories that went throughout the issue, but to kind of commemorate the occasion, Marvel posted up on their Twitter account asking what your favorite Marvel comic was. And that kind of got me thinking, you know, what is my favorite Marvel comic story? And I'm talking single issue, not a full arc. I've talked up and down about my favorite arcs when it comes to Marvel Comics, Winter Soldier, Superior Spider-Man, uh, Uncanny X-Force, all of those comics, but I wanted to really kind of pinpoint what my favorite single issue of Marvel Comics will be, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. But not just that, we're also going to be talking about uh, this week's Comics Countdown, counting down some of the top comics that I think you should definitely be checking out, as well as our review on Episode 4 of the boys as part of our weekly review. But before we jump into all of that, let's go ahead and dive headfirst into this week's news. All right, guys and gals. A little bit of a slower news week, but we've got some news to talk about here. Uh, we have, of course, our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous news. We will start off with the miscellaneous news, and kicking that off, we got some official gameplay for Cyberpunk 2077. Really looking forward to this game. Uh, it's by CD Projekt Red, the same people who did The Witcher, and they, it looks like they're putting just as much effort into this game as they put into that franchise. Uh, we got 15 minutes of gameplay in the District of Pacifica, and they showed off two of the different kind of class play styles. Um, really interesting stuff, basically the difference between uh, stealth or uh, running in and gun with guns blazing, but they did say that it's kind of a fluid class system that you can pick, kind of pick and choose the attribute, attributes that you like to kind of build your own hybrid class, so I really like that uh, aspect of it. It is a lot of uh, first person, which I'm kind of hoping they give us the option for uh, third person because that's just how I personally, I personally prefer to play my games. But uh, really interesting stuff, really cool gameplay. Uh, we also got to see a little bit of Keanu Reeves' character Johnny Silverhands, um, or Silverhand, I want to say. 
uh, who has been revealed to be kind of like your Tyler Durden. He's basically a character uh, that is kind of like your uh, ghostly companion who's kind of feeding you information and you can actually decide throughout the course of the game whether he will be an ally or an enemy so I like that there's a lot of depth that's being shown with this game and I'm excited to see what uh, really what they do with it next up in uh, miscellaneous news some wrestling news because I'm a wrestling fan uh, if you don't like wrestling I'm sorry we're gonna get through it but um, this past weekend was the Big Show AEW All Out from the Sears Center Arena in Chicago, Illinois, and they have officially crowned their very first champion, that being Chris Jericho. Um, I'm fine with this. I know with this, uh, with them debuting on TNT in October, they needed kind of a name to go with with their first champion, so it makes sense that's Chris Jericho. Overall, really enjoyed the show. I watched it live on Saturday. I had a great time. Some great matches. Definitely go back check out that match. Check out the Cody Rhodes-Sean Spears match. That's my personal favorite match of the night. As well as the Cracker Barrel Clash, a triple threat between Darby Allin, uh, Joey Janela, and uh, Jimmy Havoc. And then also definitely check out the uh, ladder match, the uh, tag team ladder match between the Lucha Brothers and the Young Bucks. Incredible matches all night. Really looking forward to seeing what AEW does in the future, especially since they debut in a month. So really excited to see that. Jumping over to comics news, uh, DC has officially revealed the Infected after the release of Batman Superman number one last week, and I was right. I don't like bragging but i was right um the characters that have been revealed to be the infected are in fact shazam supergirl jim gordon blue beetle hawkman and donna troy so um and you saw they basically dc released this kind of uh video on twitter and i guess it's on youtube as well uh showcasing that big splash page with all the characters and showing that it, all the characters who had were either touching their face or neck were in fact the ones who were uh infected so feel pretty good about pointing that out knowing realizing that and i'm excited to see where these characters go the first issue was very big uh lots of great ideas and you will have to tune in to our uh comics countdown this week to see if it was our pick of the week um moving on to tv news uh got some pretty big news when it comes to tv stuff uh watchmen the hbo watchmen series which is kind of being uh I guess marketed as a sequel. Uh, I think it's been confirmed that it's a sequel as well. Ha officially has a release date. They released a video uh, today, as of this recording. As of this recording, they released it on Tuesday. Um, that basically is a ticking clock with the caption "Everything Begins," and it has been revealed that Watchmen will officially debut on HBO on October twentieth. So, really looking forward to this. I will definitely be keeping a close eye on it. Um, it throws me off a little bit because I, of course, am planning on doing the weekly review on the final season of Arrow this year, but I may also do a review for Watchmen as it comes out as well. Let me know if you would be interested in that. Um, 
yeah, just let me know, because I'm definitely going to be watching both, and they are going to be coming out weekly as well, so being able to do kind of a weekly review on both shows might be cheating, but I think we can, we can let it slide for something as big as the final season of Arrow, as well as the official sequel to Watchmen. So, again, let me know if you'd be interested in that. Uh, Geeksplain Pod, it's Geeksplain P-O-D on Twitter and Instagram or through email because I'm an old man I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Also, bit of rumors going on in TV news here. Uh, Moon Knight, we know Moon Knight is coming for uh, Phase 4 on Disney+. Plus. He was announced along with Miss Marvel and She-Hulk at D23. And there's apparently some casting rumors going on right now that we have a frontrunner to play Mark Spector, the Moon Knight. And he's not who you think it would be. It's actually Shia LaBeouf. There's a lot of rumors that Marvel has reached out to Shia LaBeouf and they are currently uh, kind of fast-tracking him to be uh, their lead for this. And I gotta say, I don't hate it. I don't hate the idea. He's... uh, Shia LaBeouf's an interesting character, and I think, just as a person, and I think he would be able to really bring out the kind of mental instability of Mark Spector really well, being able to play off those different personalities, and being able to show uh, the differences between the more, I would say, clean-cut Batman versus the more gritty and real Moon Knight between the two of them. A lot of comparisons are always drawn between the two. So, um... I'm interested. I'm not sure how I would feel about it. I would have to see it, but I'm definitely interested, and I don't hate the idea. Uh, going into film news for our final segment for our news, uh, we've got some... I'll, I'll do the uh, the other casting rumors that's co- currently going on right now. So on the opposite side, on the DC side, James Gunn's Suicide Squad is coming together quickly and yet slowly at the same time and right now there are apparently rumors that two new cast members will be brought in those being uh, Pete Davidson from SNL and Peter Capaldi that's right the doctor himself the 12th doctor Peter Peter Capaldi may be joining Suicide Squad there have been rumors about Peter Capaldi I guess going far as back as a couple weeks now and he looks to be pretty much all on board and there are rumors that Pete Davidson is next to join but we don't have official casting for them just yet. I'm really interested. I don't know who Peter Capaldi would play. Uh, I was talking to friends recently and we all agreed that he would make an incredible Alfred. So I'm interested to see who he ends up being. If he ends up being Clock King I'm going to laugh my head off. But um, I'm interested. We'll see. Uh, also in film news, Andy Muschietti, who is having a big month with the release of It Chapter 2, has officially revealed that his next filming or his next directing project is going to be The Flash. We had rumors that he was going to be directing The Flash without any real kind of official confirmation, but we officially have the news that Andy Muschietti has confirmed. He was basically asked during the press uh, tour for It Chapter 2 what his next project will be, and he uh, he confirmed that it would be The Flash. Uh, he did also say that there won't be very many horror aspects to it, and that what brought him to the project was human drama. So I'm interested, um, even though I'm, uh, I don't, I don't, 
deal with clowns. Uh, <laughs> um, I thought that It Chapter One was incredibly well put together as a film, well directed, and I think Andy Muschietti really has an eye for making uh, genre storytelling. So I'm looking forward to it. I think he will do wonders for this character if he doesn't drop out like every other director has dropped from this project. And then finally, also on the DC side, we got an official final trailer for Joker, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix Joker that's being uh, directed by Todd Phillips. We got a trailer. We got this final trailer. Basically, I would say it's the story trailer. The other trailers have been more about character beats, but this one really kind of gives us a through line for... uh, Walking Phoenix's Joker. Really looking forward to this. Trailer looked fantastic. We got some uh, Zazzy Beats. We got some, uh, I don't remember the actor's name, but he's playing Thomas Wayne. Uh, and just Walking Phoenix absolutely killing it as his character. I cannot wait. There's a great moment. We got some Mark Marin. Big fan of Mark Marin's. And uh, him and I want to say it's De Niro are basically in the dressing room for. Uh, the Joker as he's getting ready to go on to uh, De Niro's show and the the very last scene is basically him going, when you introduce me can you call me Joker? And there's just this amazing power in that scene where you don't know exactly what he's thinking, you don't know exactly what his motivations are and I love that. That's a core concept for the character and I'm really looking forward to seeing what Uh, They do with him, and apparently so are a lot of people, because he debuted this past weekend, the Joker film did, at the Venice Film Festival, alongside the documentary Kingmaker, cheap plug, I was uh, fortunate to be part of the voiceover cast for uh, for that documentary, check it out when it does come to showtime, but, not about me, going into the Joker stuff, uh, really really good stuff for the joker coming out of venice film festival um he apparently the film got an eight minute standing ovation which is really exciting and a lot of the reviews have come out it's currently sitting let me check this right here um joker finally got some reviews people calling it a masterpiece people calling it oscar worthy saying that joaquin phoenix has his best shot at getting the oscar that he's had uh no luck in getting so far for best actor um checking right here um the film officially debuted on rotten tomatoes with an 85 percent certified fresh i'm looking at it currently and it is sitting right now at an 86 with let's see here 40 reviews so far uh i think that's great The critic census, as I'm reading on the Rotten Tomatoes site here, says Joker gives its infamous central character a chillingly plausible origin story that serves as a brilliant showcase for its star in a dark evolution for comics-inspired cinema. So I'm looking forward to this. 85 is a great number. Uh, I'm sure that as more reviews come in and as we get audience scores, that number may go up. But we will just have to see. But I'm excited. It's looking like it's going to be a really great month for, uh, or a really great year, honestly, for comic book films. And I cannot wait to see exactly what this film has in store when it hits theaters officially. But uh, that's going to do it for this week's news. 
Now we are going to move on to the main course, the entree of the episode, if you will, which is talking about not just uh, the release of Marvel Comics 1000 last week, but also my personal favorite Marvel Comics story. So Marvel is celebrating its 80th birthday this year, 80 years of Marvel Comics. Um, that's a huge milestone. It's really, really a big thing. And uh, to celebrate this, they released Marvel Comics 1000 last week. It was basically an anthology story, dozens of different creators on dozens of different stories. Uh, as far as I could tell, they basically said, hey... Do you have a character you're interested in? Do a one-page story, and we'll print it. So a bunch of different char characters were in play. Uh, Al Ewing was kind of, I would guess, the closest thing to like a lead writer for this, because he did a few different stories that were all interconnected and leading into something that is going to be, I'm assuming, a big deal in Marvel Comics in 2020. So no spoilers on that. But... I was pleasantly surprised by this book. Uh, you get a lot of these like big milestone books and they kind of, um, they don't really live up to the hype, but I think this book did for what it was. It didn't say there was going to be any kind of like earth shattering stuff. It didn't say that it was going to be, you know, changing the face of comics. It was basically, we're celebrating 80 years of comic book storytelling with these characters and we want you along for the ride and that's exactly what you get with this book uh, my personal favorite story i think is a uh, punisher wolverine team up again it's a one pager really nice written by jason aaron with art um, let me double check i want to make sure i get this right art is by I'm flipping through this right now goran parlov so it's a really nice uh team up a not as a uh, common team up that we see very much anymore uh, and it's <laughs> it's a it's a uh, it's a little breather between two uh, big what I'm assuming action set pieces and uh, it's just great having two characters interact who you don't really get to see interact very often so I really enjoyed that plus Jason Aaron is just incredible but the big uh kind of lead-in for this week's episode, for uh, this edition of the Geeks Play Podcast, episode number 72, uh, kind of got spawned not by this book, but by uh, Marvel Comics themselves, because to celebrate their uh, release of this book, they put up on their Twitter, what is your favorite Marvel comic? And I thought about it. I thought about it long and hard, and I was like, you know what? I want to do this for this episode. And I thought about it, and I wanted to talk about my favorite Marvel story. And I'm not actually talking about um, 
arcs, like storylines, you've heard some of my favorite storylines before. The big uh, thing that I wanted to do with this is what is one single Marvel Comics issue that I look at, I can read again and again and again, I can always look back and say that this is my favorite single issue, this is my favorite Marvel story. And this is, I think, a lot of people's favorite, but um, it's easy to pick it because it's a fantastic story and that is the amazing spider-man issue number 33 released in february of 1966 that's right we're going all the way back to the 60s uh pretty early on in the spider-man uh mythos he'd only been created just a couple years prior and now it is kind of marketed as the final chapter. This was part three of a three-part story called If This Be My Destiny. And this is just, I think, the best Spider-Man story and might be the best Marvel Comics story single issue that they've ever made. And they've made a lot. They've made tons over the last 80 years. But I think this story really is everything that you would want in a Marvel comic. I'm going to talk about the creative team here. I've got the uh, the comic right in front of me. Unfortunately, I'm not able to get my hands on a physical copy, uh, which sucks. But I am able to read the entire issue uh, using the Comixology app, which is not a sponsor of this podcast, but it could be a sponsor. And I'm able to go through this entire issue and I'll be, you know, going through the pages on my tablet here as I'm talking about it just so that I can kind of keep up with it. And I'm going to kind of walk you guys and gals through this issue if you've never read it. Uh, Do yourself a favor, especially if you're a Spider-Man fan. This is an iconic Spider-Man story. Try and pick this up. Uh, I'm going to talk about the creative team here. So we have listed script and editing by Stan Lee. Uh, Plot and Illustrations by Steve Ditko, that classic team, Stanley and Steve Ditko. Uh, Bordering and Lettering by Artie Simic. And Reading and Enjoying by you. That's uh, Stanley always used to kind of put these little in-jokes in his uh, comics way back in the day when he was kind of more uh, active when it came to scripting out certain issues. But uh, the... Original run of The Amazing Spider-Man by Stanley and Steve Ditko is kind of heralded as the golden age of the character. This is when all of his major villains really took center stage, all the ones that have lasted for decades and decades and decades and decades all the way through here. And uh, this issue, I think, really features not only some of the most gripping character moments for Peter, but also has an iconic image, and really captures the spirit of the character. So uh, to recap, because this is part three of a three-part story, um, I'm going to read to you in uh, in my podcast voice, I'm going to read to you the recap that uh, Stanley has penned in here. So uh, bear with me. I'm going to try my best to read the 60s dialogue that... uh, Stan the Man Lee has written to recap the previous two issues going into the story. So here we go. The Amazing Spider-Man, the final chapter. 
As Peter Parker's Aunt May lies dying in the hospital, victim of the effects of radioactivity in her bloodstream, a sympathetic Dr. Connors waits for Spider-Man to bring him ISO 36, for it is the only serum which might save Peter's aunt. But the stolen serum is in the possession of Dr. Octopus, whose masked henchmen wait outside a steel door as Spidey and Doc Ock battle within. And, none suspect that a sudden leak in the underwater dome of the hidden hideout is growing bigger and bigger. While Spider-Man himself, having beaten his multi-armed foe, is now trapped beneath tons of fallen steel, with the precious serum lying just out of reach as the fatal seconds tick by. Possibly one of the most thoroughly satisfying Spider-Man sagas you have ever thrilled to. And the uh, final panel shows of this uh, initial page, uh, Spider-Man just completely pinned down by the, uh, basically by all the machinery saying, I failed just now when it counted the most. I failed, but I can't give up. I must keep trying. I must. So that really kind of tells you everything you need to know about this book. Um, this was part of the... Uh, like I said, the three-issue saga, the If This Be My Destiny story arc, but also known as the Master Planner saga, which involved uh, Spidey basically going up against the unknown Master Planner. We didn't know his identity. It was later revealed, of course, that it was Doc Ock. Uh, this was Peter also settling into uh, college life. He just started college. This story introduced us to iconic characters like Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborn, and also involved uh, Aunt May getting deathly sick because of a blood transfusion that Peter had given her uh, stories, arcs ago, and it was finally coming here. And so uh, Spidey fought Doc Ock to a standstill, was able to defeat him after he tracked him down to this underwater lair, and uh, unfortunately after he defeated Doc Ock, the I think it was like the ceiling of the lair kind of caved in and all of this machinery fell on top of Spidey, pinning him with the serum just out of arm's reach. So this issue kind of picks up there. Really, really good stuff. We've seen this iconic moment in dozens of different Spidey cartoons, films, video games. We've seen it replicated all over. It's Spider-Man pinned under machinery having to push his way out. So what I really love, I'm going to talk about kind of the events of the comic and then go into my, uh, I guess, my overall thoughts of the comic itself. So it starts off, Peter is trying to get himself out of this machinery. He keeps talking about how lifting it's the only way he's going to get out. He's pinned. The serum's just out of his reach, and he starts thinking about how Aunt May uh, is counting on him. She's dying in a hospital bed, and if he isn't able to save her, he's basically repeating exactly what happened to his Uncle Ben. This is Uncle Ben being brought back into the story at a fantastic time. Peter is lamenting about his inability to uh, save Uncle Ben and then kind of reaffirms his belief that he's going to get out of this and save Aunt May. And even says, I'm looking at this panel here, he says, and maybe then I'll no longer be haunted by the memory of Uncle Ben. So this could be, as it says in the title, the final chapter for Spidey. His entire early run was based off of this idea, this guilt that Spidey held from not being able to save Uncle Ben. Like that was the whole, that's the whole impetus of his character, the great power 
there must also come great responsibility line came out of this lesson being taught by the death of Zungle Ben. So this could be, especially with it being titled the final chapter, them basically saying this is the end. This is where Spidey might be able to finally forgive himself. So what I love about the Steve Ditko art here is that as the story goes, uh, Stanley originally thought that this sequence, him, you know, getting the machinery off of him, would only be one page, if not one panel. And Steve Ditko believed so much in this story and in Spider-Man's journey through this issue that it takes up half the issue. And the panels, if you have the uh, the comic with you slowly start to get bigger and Spidey slowly starts to take up more of the frame as he's you know saying stuff like within the my body is the strength of many men and he's pushing this machinery up it's the the greatest feat of strength that he's had to endure throughout his entire run so far and he says this classic monologue with the uh, machinery on top of him saying anyone can win a fight when the odds are easy it's when the going's tough when there seems to be no chance that's when it counts and he's just pushing and pushing and pushing the water is just pouring down onto him and he finally on the next page shouts i did it i'm free and he pushes the machinery off of him this is you know the machinery is huge like i'm looking at it right now and it is ridiculously large for the small space that that room was so it's basically the entirety of the machinery that's involved in that room and he's able to finally push it off he gets the serum for aunt may but he seems that or it seems that like his leg has been severely injured by that uh right after he gets no rest right after he's able to get the uh the serum the uh ceiling finally breaks through the water comes rushing in and he basically just goes limp he allows himself to be pushed along the water so that he can kind of rest and regain his strength and he's finally able to swim his way into another room comes up for air then is immediately pulled back down by some of doc ock's uh scuba henchmen back in the 60s scuba henchmen were terrifying and uh the designs here are just fantastic like i'm looking through this comic looking through this issue the colors here are really great um this whole sequence where Spidey's kind of fighting off the scuba henchman is underwater, just in pale blues. He's able to dispatch the scuba henchman, makes his way up to the surface, into the next room, but is, finds that he is surrounded by more henchmen. Not scuba henchmen, so they're not, not as frightening, but more henchmen who are hell-bent on making sure Spidey does not leave that room alive. And uh, he basically goes with this inner... just inner monologue as he just throws himself into this group he's basically uh somebody says you know we've got him outnumbered let's rush him and he says you've got it wrong fella if there's any rushing to do around here i'll do it um uh, just i love the dialogue i love 60s writing and 60s dialogue it's so good um so he just basically throws himself into this mob of henchmen and he's exhausted he just fought doc ock he was pinned under the machinery just used all of his strength to push that machinery off of him swam through basically got hit by a uh 
just a huge current of water, was able to fight off two other henchmen, and now he's exhausted. He is beaten and battered, and he has to throw himself into another crowd of henchmen. And he's just going through this inner monologue, basically saying that he's letting them beat the crap out of him because as regular guys against his spider strength, they're not doing as much damage, and it's allowing him to rest. Once again, Spidey is uh, just kind of going with the flow here. A big thing about his character leading into the story and as well as throughout the last two issues was him being unable to kind of roll with the punches he's unable to uh, adapt his whole thing about trying to hold on to everything that he has without being able to embrace um, change and so that's a character beat that's kind of carried with him, been carried with him throughout his entire history but here he's able to kind of relax let them beat beat on him for a little bit as he's able to uh rest he says in one thought bubble this is probably the first time anyone ever rested by taking a beating but then i never was much of a conformist and so he finally decides now i've got to start fighting back while i still can and he just starts swinging just taking guys out one by one by one and he once again goes into his inner monologue saying um i'm spider-man and i'm not going to fail i'm not i'm not not with aunt may counting on me needing me a man may lose a man may be defeated it's no disgrace so long as he doesn't give up and i'm not giving up i'm not i'm not i'll keep fighting no matter what i won't give up and so he is just swinging and he's so furiously trying to just kind of put his head down and defeat everything that's in front of him that in a great panel you just see that he's beaten everybody but he's still like swinging basically saying i'll keep fighting until it's until it's over and he just is swinging at air because he's so tired and exhausted and beaten and he's just trying he's gone into survival mode and so he uh basically after he realizes he's knocked everybody out he is just battered he's broken he makes his way out of the underwater uh, facility and over to doc connors this is the same doc connors who is also the lizard and so the two of them are working together on this serum uh, spidey is able to give him the iso 36 iso 38 that he needs to give him and uh, doc connors is able to put together an antidote that will cure Aunt May. So then he, Spidey runs it over to the hospital with only seconds to spare. They use the uh, the serum, and then they basically tell him, you've got two hours. We have two hours before we know uh, if it's going to work. So Spidey basically says, I now have to find out a way to fill two hours. So he goes out and decides, oh, I also need to pay for the medical bills. I have to... Um, basically a real spidey problem that he's always had is he's always struggling for money so he realizes i have to pay for all these medical bills and i need to figure out a way to get that money somehow so he goes back to i love this he goes back to the base with his camera and starts moving the bodies around just the unconscious bodies of henchmen and taking pictures of spider-man just kind of like faking beating them up and then he sets up his camera to show to take some more pictures of him leaving the hideout following this he gives a call to frederick foswell a uh, longtime spidey character who 
has just been through the ringer at this point, uh, possibly being the big man of crime and all that stuff going into it. Uh, he basically, he tries to do right by Foswell by, because he accused him of being the big man again after the, after Foswell was the original big man, came back, went to prison. Uh, Jonah gave him his job back and he's been trying to go on this redemption story. Uh, so, Spidey calls him to give him the scoop. He's like, hey, you know, there's a bunch of beat up guys at this, you know, uh, hideout. And Spidey just beat him up. So he has Foswell get the scoop. So he's able to kind of make up for him uh, accusing Foswell of being the big man of crime again after he had already tried to uh, better his life. So uh, Spidey is able to tell Foswell what's going on. He takes a couple more pictures after Foswell gets there and the police arrive. And then he shows back up to the, uh, to the Daily Bugle. And this is a big moment for him. He, up to this point, his main love interest has been Betty Brandt, the secretary, Jonah, uh, J. Jonah Jameson's secretary at the Daily Bugle. And they've been going through this whole weird, like, on-again, off-again thing because Betty Brandt has this thing against quote-unquote dangerous men her brother died because he was uh committed to the mob and committed to a dangerous lifestyle and so she anytime she had a conversation with peter was like i don't want you anywhere near anything um i can't be with you if you're gonna have a dangerous lifestyle and this story leading into this he was going to tell betty that he was spider-man he was fully committed to this idea that i'm going to tell her I'm going to tell her my secret, and we're going to figure it out from there. But he gets back to the Daily Bugle, and through all of this uh, all of this story, because he was going to tell her at the beginning of the story in issue 31, and he gets there, and Betty catches up to him, and she finds that he's just got black eyes, uh, probably a broken nose, bruises all over his face, looking very, like, dashing, I would say, uh, looking at the art here. Um... Steve Ditko was never really known for his, like, dashing characters. That was much more of a uh, Romita Sr. thing when he came to uh, Spider-Man after Steve Ditko left. But Peter's looking very uh, grade-A soap opera uh, lead here. And he basically tells Betty, he's like, I live a dangerous life. I, that's just how I am. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to change who I am. I'm sorry. And Betty is kind of overcome with this idea that the person, the man that she's in love with, may end up like her brother, dead. And so she basically, you know, says... Uh, <laughs> I'm just reading the panel here, and I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, Once before I lost... This is Betty. Once before I lost someone, someone who meant the world to me because he wanted to live dangerously. I couldn't bear that heartbreak again. I couldn't bear to lose another. It's too much to ask, too much for a girl to have to endure. Peter, Peter, why do you have that stubborn streak? Why can't you stick to your studies? Why must you always crave action? I love this. I just, I love this if you have not gone back and read like classic spider-man or classic iron man classic like 60s era marvel you are missing out on a piece of history just because of the dialogue alone but it's so good so anyway um 
she basically that's kind of the breakup moment where peter's like i was going to tell her i was spider-man but i can't stop being who i am and who i am is spider-man and spider-man leaves a dangerous lifestyle so he goes to uh jonah and he basically shows off the photos and jonah's like oh my god let me get these and peter says no i want my money I want you to pay for these for each one. And Jonah's like, ah, you know how generous I am. You know, we'll settle up later. And Peter's like, yeah, I know how generous you are, which is why we're going to settle it up now. And he says, you know, Peter's very staunch about this. He's very, like, focused. He wants to solve his problem. So he basically says, I want $100 each or I'll peddle them elsewhere. And Jonah's basically like, oh, my God, you know, that's, that's too much. But, you know, because... I'm generous. I'll give them to you for that price. And then there's a thought bubble that says he doesn't realize they're worth twice as much, which is just so quintessentially uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker. Like his problem is that he only looks for exactly what he needs and doesn't, you know, go into greater uh, trying to... uh, what is it called um improve his wealth so uh and it's a classic you know peter and jonah back and forth so jonah writes him the check he gives him the photos the transaction concludes for the moment and so peter heads back to the hospital um and he is told that may made it that the serum worked that she's been cured and that he is going to or uh, he's still going to have aunt she's still alive and peter basically like breaks down like he is just like oh the weight of the world is lifted off his shoulders he was able to save the one person who means the most to him and he gives you know he holds her hand lets her kind of drift off to sleep and uh this this final kind of monologue by the doctors uh, i'm gonna just read to you in its entirety so he's um basically the doctor and peter are talking to each other and the doctor says she dropped off to sleep again she's resting much easier now the crisis has passed she'd never have made it if not for that serum which spider-man brought us i wonder where he fits into all this and peter says i don't know doc but maybe he's not quite as bad as some people think he is doctor replies well at any rate you'd better go home and get yourself some rest and peter says i'll i think i'll be able to now and then as he's leaving there's a great great just collection of four panels at the very end of this issue where it's the doctor looking out on peter through a window as peter's slowly walking home he's limping his legs probably broken and he's finally able to rest. He's been so exhausted. His whole quest to uh, save Aunt May has taken all this time. He hasn't slept. And so he's finally kind of heading off into the sunset almost. Where uh, the doctor says as you know, he's drawing the blinds closed. He says that Peter Parker certainly is a nice boy. He's sincere, well-mannered, and devoted to his aunt. Too bad there aren't many more young men like that. Too bad someone like him can't be an idol for teenagers to imitate, instead of some mysterious, unknown thrill-seeker like Spider-Man. And that is just the lesson of Spider-Man's public opinion in a nutshell. It's just, Peter is a good person, so is Spider-Man, but people will only see what they want to believe and what the Daily Bugle at that point was printing. So... The issue also kind of gives you a next time. It's the return of Craven the Hunter. And as many people know, Craven is one of my favorite Spidey villains. But the issue really is about basically the turning point of Peter's life, the flashpoint, if you will, where Peter had to make a decision and he 
changed his life and the life of others because of the events of this book. This is not just kind of the end of Act 1 of his story, but the beginning of how Peter was going to be going forward. Following this, we get more uh, familiar with Gwen Stacy, with Harry Osborne, uh, Mary Jane, we'd get more familiar with Flash Thompson, the Green Goblin would be more in play here and get more personal, and just things would continue to uh, basically raise the stakes for Spider-Man as his history and his career in superheroics went on, but no greater moment I think there is in Spider-Man's history than this moment in this issue, Amazing Spider-Man number 33, the final chapter of If This Be My Destiny. So that is the issue in itself. I'm going to talk about now why I think it's not just my favorite Marvel comic story, but it might just be the greatest single issue that Marvel ever ever put out. This is back in the 60s. This is the mid-60s when they put this out. But this really has so much when it comes to its iconic characters. Spider-Man is to Marvel Comics what Batman is to DC. When a lot of people think of Marvel Comics, they think, oh, it's Spider-Man. Um, and that's kind of how it's been since the 60s. You know, I'm sure some people would argue, well, now it's Iron Man. But consistently throughout the entire history of Marvel, Spider-Man has kind of been their flagship. And as much as I would like to say that Superman has been the flagship of DC, Batman has really been the flagship of that, uh, of that company. And so this character really is supposed to, in that being a flagship character, he is supposed to embody everything that that company holds dear. Everything that that company values and their heroes he is supposed to embody it he's an underdog he's always does what's right even if it's not easy and in this issue he has to uh, get over this these insurmountable odds to save the person that he loves and basically basically he's saving his mom his mother the, the woman who raised him and so this issue i'm going to talk about first the iconic moment the spidey lifting the machinery off of him it has been done to death in spider-man media uh we've seen it in the i'm just gonna rattle off a couple uh moments that i can think off the top of my head where i've seen it the spectacular spider-man cartoon the marvel uh the spider-man ps4 game uh spider-man homecoming spider-man 2 even had a little nod to it as well the toby Maguire spider-man um this this iconic uh just this iconic scene of the water rushing down, Spidey's lifting machinery off of him has been called back to numerous times. It has been just duplicated over and over and over again, but the energy, the spirit of it, really keeps it alive as a story. This is the underdog up against the insurmountable odds and finding success and being able to achieve victory. This is a story for anyone who has been... Uh, marginalized, who, ha who has been uh, put up against something that they think they can't uh, defeat. This is anyone who's ever had a problem or ever had to overcome something, this is a story for you. This is a story for the people who hold dear those ideas of anyone can win a fight when the going's easy. You know, it's those moments when there is um, adversity, when you have to really, you know, kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and really fight for what you believe in. 
uh, Spidey is able to lift this machinery off of him, and that really not only represents the immediate threat, like the literal immediate threat for him, but also I think, and he even says it in the issue when he's talking about, I might be able to forgive myself for Uncle Ben because of this. He's able to lift off that expectation and that guilt off of his shoulders with this machinery. He's able to finally... Um, become who he was always meant to be, Spider-Man. And this is just so good. This, like I said, could be literally where the story of Spider-Man ended. If this was it for him, he would go down as still one of the greatest heroes that Marvel ever came up with. But his battle doesn't end there, you know, and that's you know, a story for everybody. Just because we overcome something huge doesn't mean that adversity is going to just stop for the rest of your life. After lifting off this machinery, he has to fight through henchmen. He has to swim through um, not great waters. He has to fight his way out because the hits are going to keep on coming, but it's how you roll with them and how you react that you're able to push through and succeed. So, Really, really good stuff here. Really good stuff for the character itself. And this story really, I think, represents Spider-Man in a nutshell. It has every single thing about Spider-Man that you could possibly ask for. He's quipping, he's fighting, he's going through and um, trying to succeed despite the odds. He's caring about his aunt. He's interacting with the people who are closest to him we've got appearances from some of his biggest rogues gallery talking about the tease of craven at the end doc connors having just defeated doc ock um and he's also got you know all of the cameos from his supporting cast you know we've got betty brandt who's his love interest at the time frederick foswell who is something like a father figure to him and a close friend as well we've got j jonah jameson possibly the greatest Spider-Man supporting character right up there with Aunt May uh, making an appearance and being so quintessentially J. Jonah Jameson that he almost, you know, teeters on parody. But that's who J. Jonah Jameson always is. That's who he's always been. Uh, we also see uh, Peter going through his day-to-day -day life along with these superheroics. He is, you know, struggling with a, uh, a romantic partner and his expectations for not just himself but how he is going to be a spider-man we see him peddling his photos we see him as a photographer as a journalist and finally we see him bearing the fruits of his labors but also not really getting any kind of respect for it which is so quintessentially spider-man he is the guy who always does good but is never able to reap the benefits of it at least with his public perception. So this really is Spider-Man in, in a nutshell. And of course, there would be stories that would come after this, the death of Gwen Stacy, his whole relationship with uh, Mary Jane, the Clone Saga, uh, Spider Island, Superior Spider-Man, one of my personal favorites. And all of this stuff would continue to weigh on him and he would continue to triumph and succeed despite the odds but i think this story is really where he learned that this is really where he learned that as strong as he is the only way he is ever going to win the greater fight is by his force of will in his heart and at the at his core that is spider-man's character so i love this story this is my favorite marvel comic 
single issue. This is my favorite Marvel story, and I uh, really love sharing it with you guys. If you haven't read this, feel free, do so. It's on the Comixology app. You can get it for, like, less than $2, and you'll have it forever. Um, if you can find a hard copy of this story, that would be incredible as well. But it's just... It's Ditko and Lee at their best. This is shortly before Ditko ended up leaving the book and was later replaced by Ramita Sr. But this is really the height of the initial Stanley Steve Ditko uh, Spider-Man arc. I encourage you to read the entire Master Planner Saga, issue 31, 32, and 33, also known as If This Be My Destiny, because this is an iconic Spider-Man story that can be felt throughout Spider-Man's comic appearances, throughout his film appearances, throughout his cartoon, video game, whatever appearances he makes, this story has always influenced him in any iteration of the character. So definitely check this out. I would also love to know what is your favorite Marvel comic story? Single issue, if you want to talk about your favorite arcs, feel free to do so. Um, I would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, I really enjoyed going through this single issue if you would like to uh get more episodes where i'm just going through single issues you know panel by panel page by page feel free to let me know it was a ton of fun to kind of go back and read some of the uh panels to you uh i cannot do this issue justice for as good as it is but i tried my best and uh this really is also peak uh, Steve Ditko storytelling with Stan really uh, filling in the blanks, filling in the dialogue and really making it, helping to make it as iconic as it is. So that is my favorite Marvel comic story. Once again, it is The Amazing Spider-Man number 33 of February of 1966, entitled The Final Chapter of This of If This Be My Destiny, also known as the Master Planner Saga. It is my favorite Marvel comic story, and I think it is the greatest single issue that Marvel has ever made. And it is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are halfway through The Boys. That's right, I've been taking it real slow on a bingeable show that everyone is telling me to just hurry up and finish. We're halfway there, guys. We're halfway there. And this week we are going to be reviewing episode 4 titled The Female of the Species. Now, for longtime fans of The Boys, if you read the comic or anything like that, you would know by the title of this episode that we are being introduced to the female. She is a uh, big fan favorite, I think, in the original comics. She's weird. She's mute. Uh, she pals around with Frenchie in the comics. And this one really kind of radically, actually... Uh, just totally changed up the character because at least from what I remember in the uh, original comic she didn't have any powers she was just very very good with a knife and she um, was with Billy Butcher's 
uh, gang from the very beginning. But in this, she is someone who I'm assuming has something to do with uh, Compound V. They do end up finding her in one of the kind of stash houses for Compound V, and she just steals the show every single moment that she is on. Um, I believe she played Katana in the Suicide Squad film, and uh, she is just so good at playing so many emotions without saying a single word and she really stole the show throughout this entire episode uh the boys find her kind of chained up in like i said the stash house for compound v that's near the uh noodle shop and she immediately just starts tearing into people like we have seen gore in this show so far but the stuff that the female was doing to other people, just on another level. Uh, she ends up escaping, going into a, uh, a nearby like salon, spa kind of place, and ends up killing kind of the matriarch there. And later on, we find out that it's because that this uh, woman who was running the shop was also running human trafficking, and probably had something to do with uh, the female being sold into the. Uh, whoever owned the stash house but she really stole the show for me we saw we see her later on uh during the uh later on in the episode and she's kind of watching this i don't know if it's like k-pop or like some kind of uh foreign thing but she really kind of quickly builds a bond with frenchie and i'm excited to see where that goes uh, further on as we go along but her power set is ridiculous uh, she even went up against A-Train during the episode and got the crap kicked out of her but still walked away and didn't seem to really have a whole lot of what I would say is any kind of negative consequences however right after this uh, she's kind of knocked out with some, uh, some gas so I don't know where we're going to go with her but I'm really excited to to have her in the fold finally. Uh, we also got, just checking through my notes here, uh, some backstory, a little bit of backstory on the boys. Finally, been finally diving into some stuff. We're talking uh, Butcher, we're talking MM, and we're talking Frenchie. Their background, how they all know each other, and really kind of what led to the initial split of the boys. Uh, I don't know if they've actually, I don't think they've called themselves the boys yet. I'm sure it's coming, but, um, they bring up Mallory once again uh, during the initial confrontation between Frenchie and MM in an earlier episode. Mallory's name was brought up. We're not sure exactly who she is. But from what it sounds like, Mallory was the former leader of the boys. Uh, she might be dead. She might uh, have been killed. But we do know that the whole animosity between Frenchie and MM is caused by... Uh, I guess a botched mission that they initially had where Frenchie was supposed to tail Lamplighter back when he was a major part of the Seven, and he ended up not tailing him for whatever reason, and that ended up in Mallory's grandchildren being um, just burned alive. And so MM has always kind of had this resentment towards Frenchie because of that. Now, we don't know if they were burned alive by Lamplighter or whether it was by Homelander or whatever, but we do know that they used to be a pretty well-oiled team, but that this incident with Mallory's grandchildren really just kind of splintered and fractured the boys. But this scene does give us, finally, 
the uh, the impetus for the uh, for the Spice Girls being brought into the show, as well as being our intro for this segment, uh, because <laughs> Billy Witcher gives them probably the most amazing uh, come together moment by asking them what each individual member of the Spice Girls is doing and basically making an analogy between them and the boys saying that none of them know what they're doing they're spinning their wheels by themselves but together they're the freaking Spice Girls and that's who we are and MM is even just like what I no I don't I just I don't get you and I loved that I love that this is Billy Butcher's Hail Mary to get his team on the same page as bringing up the Spice Girls it's just it's absolutely fantastic and just really drives home why I love this show uh, we also got a genuine uh, first date scene with Annie and Huey they finally got to go on their first date and it's to a bowling alley classic classic high school first date kind of stuff kind of stuff and uh, I really enjoyed it I liked their banter their chemistry is really good Um, all the dialogue in there was really well we got a tease for a possible uh, event later on down the line in the series let me look up again what the name of it is Um, I can't hmm I'm trying to figure out the name of it but anyway uh it's basically like this big uh getaway religious retreat where i'm sure someone is yelling right now what the name of it is but uh it's basically like this big uh if you've ever been to like bible camp or stuff like that it's basically like one of those it's kind of like a convention a religious convention and not only is uh the usual suspects homelander um gonna be there but also annie as starlight will be making an appearance at this place and she's obviously embarrassed and she basically tells huey that she's just going there to give like a teens seminar apparently that should be interesting if we get there i'm hopefully looking forward to seeing that and then we get this really kind of cute moment where Annie seems to be really bad at bowling, but Huey brings up the fact that she said that she used to bowl all the time and kind of calls her out, basically saying like, hey, um, you can, I feel like this is some sort of like, you don't want to show me up because you have superpowers and I don't on the first date. And he gives her, you know, permission to be as super as she wants to be. And she seems really fulfilled by that because it feels like, Throughout this whole show so far, throughout the season, Annie is constantly being pulled in different directions on who she's being told to be. She's not able to actually be herself, whether it's be a normal person or be superpowered. And so Huey kind of gives her permission to be like, no, you're good. Like, I'm not going to judge you in any direction for who you are because who you are is who I really like and who I'm really into. And so she's able to show him off how good at bowling she is with her superpowers and everything so i just i really liked that and once again their uh, their genuine chemistry is really selling this relationship between the two of them we also got a really weird subplot with the deep um who seems to be kind of spiraling he's getting really fed up with like his small time heroics and he's wanting to do something that he finds value in 
which to him ends up being liberating a dolphin from their equivalent of SeaWorld. And it's really funny because he first brings it, the idea to Stillwell, and Stillwell's like, we have a sponsorship deal with them. Like, you're the face of their whole brand. And the Deep's like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. But we could just not care about that because I want to save this dolphin. And the scene where he actually goes and steals the dolphin, quote-unquote liberating it, uh, is really awkward and really uncomfortable, as all of the deep scenes have been so far, where it sounds like the dolphin is like trying to come on to him as they're like driving and the deep's just like yeah you know if i just if i touch you you know will you shut up and it's really weird and uncomfortable but then uh the cops uh i think it's one or two cop cars stop right in front of him and he slams on the brakes and sends the dolphin sailing through the windshield ah i feel so bad just sails through the windshield out onto the street in front of them and they get subsequently run over by a semi it is disturbing it's awful and at the same time it's so quintessentially the boys like you wouldn't find this in any other superhero property that's going today live action or otherwise and i really really enjoy that uh, this is going to get ugly, it's going to get really weird, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where the Deep's uh, storyline goes from here. But the big story from this episode, and the one that I, I'm going to end on for this review, was the um, one of the most interesting, gut-wrenching, and real superhero scenes that we've gotten all year. Um, just a masterclass in like comic book storytelling where the bill to get supers in the military is still kind of being battered around no one really knows what to do um but homelander and mave get the opportunity to show how good they can be overseas when a plane from paris to i believe new york is hijacked and they're over the atlantic sea which gives the super is pretty much free reign to go where they want. Um, so they go and they try to liberate this uh, this plane. And the plane's been taken over by terrorists, and Maeve and Homelander make short work of them, of course. But then they go into the cockpit where the pilots are. They see the co-pilot's throat's been slashed, and the final terrorist is holding the other pilot by gunpoint. And instead of trying to... I don't know, find a peaceful solution. Maybe he was just um, committed to dying on the plane. He shoots the pilot. Homelander, like, laser eyes him in half. He uses his heat vision to just slice this guy in half and inadvertently just completely messes up the, um, the instruments to fly the plane. So both the pilots are dead. There's no way for them to pilot the plane to safety. Maeve tells Homelander go, to go out and catch the plane. Classic superhero, uh, specifically Superman storytelling. And Homelander brings up a kind of a valid point where he's like, what am I going to stand on to catch it? How am I going to stop this plane? And Maeve's like, well, what if you fly out and just use your momentum flying at it to stop it? And he's like, I would tear through this plane. I am built stronger than this plane is. And so he basically tells Maeve, like, we have to go. It's time to go. And the entire time they're walking from the front of the back of the plane, it is so 
tense and heartbreaking because Maeve really wants to save these people. And Homelander is just saying, like, no, everything's fine. We're just checking out something in the back. And I... Oh, man, that's hard to watch. It is hard to watch, but it is a beautifully structured scene where at near the very end, um, Maeve actually unbuckles the seatbelts to this mother and daughter. He's like, just say... Maeve's just like, just save them. Just save them, please. And Homelander says, why? So they can go tell people that we let everyone else die? And basically, like, everyone in the plane is now catching on to the fact that they're going to leave. And so they're all scrambling over each other, trying to get to Homelander, trying to, I don't know, jump on him so when he flies away they'd be saved. And Homelander, like, really lets loose for a second. He's like, get the F back, or I will laser all of you. Like, it, it's just, it's terrifying. It really is terrifying. And so he and Maeve end up leaving. The plane crashes. Everyone is killed. And in a subsequent scene at the very end of the episode, you know, U.S. Uh, US government's, like, pulling bodies out of the beach and all this stuff. And Homelander and Maeve are there. And Homelander, just performance of the century, acting of the century from Homelander here, basically tells the cameras, like, it didn't have to be this way. You know, if the U.S. government had permitted us to, or had called us before they scrambled jets, we could have saved lives here. And it's, you even see Stillwell is caught, just caught off guard by this. And he really kind of, in at least the immediate vicinity, shifts public opinion towards, you know, supers being in the military. And he's like, call your congressman. We will never, ever let anything like this happen again if we're in the military. And everyone's just like, yeah, go Homelander. And there's like a really real moment. And I've been loving Anthony Starr's acting so far. But like one guy goes like, we hear you, Homelander. And Homelander just breaks from his thing for a second. He goes, and I hear you, brother. I hear you. It was just so... um, In one way, it was very empowering because you see this kind of like symbol of America. But at the same time, it's terrifying because Homelander has constructed this cult of personality around him. And like him being kind of the face of not just um, the US uh, super community, but also, you know, potentially the face of the US military is kind of a scary idea when you see how unstable Homelander is. And even Maeve is really like unsettled by everything that's happening. She's getting a really good uh, redemption arc, I think. And I, I'm hoping that we're going to see a payoff by the end of this season. So, overall, an incredible episode. Um, the last couple episodes, the race and this have been incredibly strong. I'm really, really digging it. Uh, I'm just really looking forward to seeing the next episode and continuing to see how this show builds on top of the already solid foundation that they've structured. They have all their pieces now. All the players are in place. So let's see it all just go to hell for these for the back half of the season. I'm really looking forward to it. Feel free to let me know how you've been uh, liking it so far, of course, on either of our social medias at GeekSplainPod, that's at GeekSplainPod, or to email to geeksplain.gmail.com. Really looking forward to this. Uh, just checking out next week's episode and to see where this story progresses. Um, but for now, for this week, let's jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs>
Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. Um, we'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request me to try out, feel free to do so on either of our social medias or through email. But before we get to this week, I want to take a look back at last week with our Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And there was a lot to choose from last week. We talked about uh, last week possibly being the most stacked comics countdown that we've ever done on this podcast. I had a whopping 10 books that I wanted you to check out. This week, it's a much smaller week, but uh, last week had a lot of heavy hitters. We're talking House of X. We're talking Batman Superman. But the books that really caught my eye, my surprise winners of the week, were not Batman Superman. It was not House of X. It was, in fact, two much smaller books in scope that tied for the pick of the week of last week. And those books were Spider-Man Life Story, number 6 of 6, and Thor, number 16. Now, both of these books are finales for their respective uh uh, runs. The Spider-Man Life Story is the completion of this miniseries, while Thor number 16 is the final issue for Jason Aaron and Mike Del Mundo before uh, Jason Aaron moves on to the King Thor storyline that he is going to wrap up his entire Thor epic with, rejoining with Asad Ribic, or Rivik. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, and I'm sorry. But these books were just, God, they're so fantastic. I really, I was expecting it to be Batman Superman, but these books really knocked it out of the park for me. Uh, Spider-Man Life Story, we'll start off with this one, specifically was just such a fantastic finale to this story. We've watched Peter grow from decade to decade, from the 60s all the way to this final issue, which takes place in 2019, where Peter is 72 years old. I repeat, Peter Parker in this story as Spider-Man is 72 years old. And I'm going to throw a quick spoiler warning up for both of these books because I just need to gush about how good these books were. Um, this book takes place post the Civil War. This book takes place post a uh, Doctor Doom takeover, essentially, where uh, Peter and the remaining heroes are kind of uh, essentially forming a resistance and post the emergence of Miles Morales as Spider-Man. Now the plan for them is for Peter and Miles to go up to the space station to basically uh, liberate the world. How they're going to do this is by uploading a virus into this satellite which is going to bring down all of Doom's uh, defenses and they will be able to retake their world. But as they get up there, Peter's noticing something strange. We find out that his, uh, his children are alive and well, though Benji has been stripped of his spider powers and he is now walking with a cane. And you get this really nice scene where you see how his, how his kids have grown up, uh, how his relationship with Mary Jane has only gotten stronger throughout their years together. And Miles acts a little weird in this book. Um, he's not as jovial or as uh, quippy as the Miles that we've come to know, especially the Miles from Into the Spider-Verse, for those of you who love that incarnation like I do. And we find out why, because 
This book features the kind of twisted mirror image of Superior Spider-Man, where we find out that Otto has supplanted Miles' mind with his own, and Otto is now inhabiting Miles' body and is hell-bent on killing Peter Parker. We also get the reemergence, finally, of the uh, symbiote-bonded Craven, though we find out that after Spidey is able to defeat this uh, Cravenom, if you will, that uh, Craven, when the symbiote leaves his body, Craven's body falls to bones, and Peter reiterates that all of his villains are dead, which makes sense with all the stuff that he's gone through. Um, Peter is able to convince Otto to give Miles his life back and promises him that there is redemption for him if he does so, and then sends Miles off because the... Uh, the virus needs more time to take effect, but the space station is coming apart. And as Peter is trying to hold it together, the symbiote saves him just long enough for the virus to upload, and then the entire thing explodes. Amazing finale. It's I am doing it no justice explaining how it is. Um, a real tearjerker moment came when Peter is having this final conversation with uh, with Mary Jane and he knows, he even says, you know, I know this is just in my mind and Mary Jane basically tells him like, does that make it any less valid? And you really get to see all of this incredible story that has been building for these issues all the way from issue one all the way here to issue six really culminate in Peter's sacrifice his final mission ending with him saving the world. And we flash forward we see that he gets a fantastic funeral and we see that uh, Mary Jane passes on the original 1960s Spider-Man costume to Miles and the real uh, kicker for this issue is the bookends of the story where Peter's talking about I'm having a dream where I keep reliving the moment that I let that killer go and he went on to kill Uncle Ben. And you get almost a shot-for-shot remake of that scene at the very beginning and at the very end of this issue. But the very end of the issue, he talks about, it's still Peter's monologue, basically him saying, like, I keep having this dream, Um, I see the thief running past me, but instead I stop him. And you see the thief run past him, Spider-Man turns, and it kind of is, of course masterfully left ambiguous whether this is Peter's dream or if this is Miles getting the opportunity to fix Peter Peter's or to basically right Peter's wrong in a different situation and you see the very last panel is Spidey slinging a web and it says it's a good dream so we don't again know if this is just Peter's dream or if this is Miles stepping into that role and saving the life that Peter ultimately couldn't in his original story but I just loved every single moment of this book it was so well done Um, if you haven't picked this up wait for the trade it is going to be incredible I'm I have all six issues but I'm still going to pick up the trade because this is such a great story and it deserves to be read and then The other book was Thor number 16, written by Jason Aaron with art by Mike Del Mundo. This is Mike Del Mundo's swan song for uh, the God of Thunder. This is the final issue for him before he is replaced by Asad Ribic, or Ribic, however you uh, pronounce that. 
And once again, stunning visuals by Mike Del Mundo. His art is second to none with his style, this very paintbrush, almost um, old school Victorian era style art that he does. This is the conclusion of Jason Aaron's modern day Thor run that started with God of Thunder and the God Butcher story all the way through the Jane Foster Thor era and here into the rebirth of the God of Thunder and the crowning of Thor as the new Allfather. Now, this story is kind of a classic story, and really, as a longtime uh, Dragon Ball Z fan, really made me smile. Because for those of you who didn't watch or weren't as into Dragon Ball Z as I was, the final episode of the series, before it did a big time skip, um, at the end of the Buu saga, was basically everyone kind of coming together for this big feast to celebrate how Goku saved the world again. But instead of actually being there, Goku is on this journey to reunite this baby dinosaur with his mother. And everyone's like, oh, where is he? Everyone's there. And they're like, where is he? He should be here. Where Goku is having this very personal, very small-scale story. And this is almost a one-for-one one kind of deal with this, except it's much bigger in scale. Uh, everyone has gathered in the uh, halls of Asgard to celebrate the new Allfather, the new king of Asgard, but Thor isn't there. Everyone, including Odin, is basically saying, like, he should be here, I have a speech prepared, but Thor is going around and saving the worlds the many worlds the nine realms he's going from realm to realm saving as many people as he can because that's how he became worthy that's how he earned this title that's how he became thor so i love just the dichotomy of all the characters wanting to know where he is what's going on with him and then thor being or that kind of being offset with thor doing all these good deeds um loki even shows up for a moment where we get this really kind of sad moment where he tells, he kind of says to himself, he's like, you know, I'm glad that Thor has all these people here. It would be a real shame to have to rule alone. Kind of mirroring that now that the two sons of Odin are kings of their own right, kings of two separate realms, they are painting very different pictures where Loki is the king of uh, Jotunheim, but he stands alone while Thor has this huge support system. So really good stuff and uh, we also feature kind of the uh, goodbyes to young Thor and King Thor respectively from the uh, main timeline King Thor heads back into his timeline which is going to kick off the King Thor book while the young Thor has possibly my favorite page of the entire week where he shows back up to his own time young Thor or uh, bro Thor dick Thor however you want to call him who has been on a journey trying to become worthy from the very first Jason Aaron issue. Uh, we saw him finally become worthy in trying to save his mother during the War of the Realms, picking up Mjolnir for the first time. But we see him show back up in his time, and he's probably worthy at this point to pick up his own hammer. But he sees it, he studies it, as it's sitting in the Hall of, uh, or in the Armory of Asgard, and he says, not yet. He's not ready to uh, step into this role, but it's also him accepting that he still has a long time. He has a long time to go. He does eventually get there, and the idea of him being comfortable with the thought that, I know I'm worthy. I have my own self-worth. 
I don't need a hammer to tell me I'm worthy was just so beautifully done and you know he walks off kind of into the sunset and I absolutely love that that is character development um just just so freaking good it was so good but I loved everything about this issue the issue of course ended with uh King Thor returning to his time and being attacked by Loki, and that is setting up the final battle, the full uh, storyline for Jason Aaron's King Thor, and the wrap-up of the Jason Aaron Thor saga. Um, Just so good. Both of these books were incredible. I loved these two finales and what they brought to the week, and what they brought to the stories as a whole, but... I just think that a lot of people kind of overlooked these books, and they absolutely should not. If you didn't pick up these books in the large mass of books that you picked up last week, head back to your comic shop, pick up these two issues, you will not be disappointed. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week, much smaller week than last week, but still some big comics coming out this week we have one two three four five six books this week for you an even split between uh dc and marvel and we are going to kick it off with old man quill number nine of twelve written by ethan Sachs with art by ibrahim roberson um this book's just been really good really really good so far i'm really digging the story especially now that quill knows in a very fight club-esque way that he has been alone the whole time and that his supposed adventures with the guardians have really just kind of been him the hero of horse creek making his way into the wastelands really really dug that and i'm really looking forward to seeing what this book does with its final act its final four issues so let's jump into the synopsis here Quill Smash Cornered and outnumbered, Peter Quill makes a desperate stand against Gladiator and the brainwashed forces of the Universal Church of Truth. Good thing there are still some toys left in the wastelands, like the Hulkbuster armor. Quill is mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. So, been really enjoying this book. Definitely pick this up, especially if you're a fan of uh, Peter Quill's Star-Lord and the whole uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Next up, we have Justice League number 31, written by Scott Snyder with art by Jorge uh, Jimenez, or George Jimenez, and Francis Manipole. Uh, This is part two of the uh, Justice Doom War, and is featuring the official return of the Justice Society. I am so excited. You all know that the JSA is my go-to. The JSA is my favorite faction uh, group whatever you want to call it in all of comics and to see them uh, teased at the very end of last week's issue makes me really excited to see what part they play here um let's just jump into the synopsis and uh we'll check this out the justice doom war part two The culmination of Lex Luthor's plan hinges on his beating the Justice League to the prize, ratcheting up the peril as the year of the villain continues. The totality has shattered, and its pieces have been tossed across space and time. Thus, the Justice League must also split apart, forming three search teams to comb the past, the present, and the future to recombine the totality before the Legion of Doom can get its villainous hands on the cosmic weapon. What allies will our heroes find in these other timelines? In the future, it's the last boy on Earth, Kamandi, but in the past, there are the familiar faces of the Justice Society of America. So yeah, really excited also for Kamandi, 
uh, a much lesser known and underappreciated character in DC Comics lore. Um, big fan of the Justice Society, big fan of uh, Scott Snyder bringing them back, and hopefully with their inclusion here as well as their inclusion in Doomsday Clock. Oh, that's coming, don't you worry. Um, I'm just really excited for the JSA to be back, so really looking forward to this book. Next up, another big book, we have Web of Black Widow, number one of five, written by Jody Hauser with art by Stephen Mooney. Um, this is basically uh, year one. This is the origin story for Black Widow. Those of you who are a fan of the character, who are excited for the Scarlett Johansson uh, solo film, definitely should pick this up, as well as fans of the black widow across the uh, marvel media this is going to be a really good book i've heard a lot of good things it's going to be a classic spy story which i'm really looking forward to so let's uh check in and jump into the synopsis here black widow year one one of marvel comics longest running female heroes finally gets her due Natasha Romanoff is the deadliest spy in the Marvel Universe and the beating heart of the Avengers. But when a mysterious figure starts exploiting her past, the widow may have to go back to black and off the grid. Who can she trust in this web of deceit? And more importantly, can her friends trust her? Don't miss the spy tale of the century. Oh, Russian's hard. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm really excited. It also looks like this is going to be kind of bookended with a modern uh, Natasha story, as well as looking back on her past in year one. So really looking forward to this book. Uh, Black Widow is definitely one of the underserved characters, so I'm really looking forward to seeing exactly what this book is going to do for her as a character. Next up, we have a very big book. This is Legion of Superheroes Millennium number one of two. Written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Jim Lee and Ryan Sook. This is it, folks. Legion of Superheroes is back. After the return to uh, modern con comics continuity in Superman number 14 last week, we are finally getting the Legion of Superheroes back in the DC Universe proper. Uh, this is part one of two to kind of reintroduce the uh, general audience to the concept of the Legion of Superheroes. Big fan of them. And I'm really looking forward to this book. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Brought to you by some of comics' greatest talents, this epic story spans the course of 1,000 years and, for the very first time, connects all of DC's future timelines. Starring the unlikeliest of DC heroes as she learns to cope with newfound immortality and roams through the disparate societies of Batman Beyond, Commandi and Tommy Tomorrow wrestling with her own inner demons and desperately trying to find her purpose in an ever-changing world. Do not miss this truly unique take on tomorrow's DC Universe, all leading up to a very special launch on the Millennium. So yeah, um, this is going to be a big thing. I'm really intrigued by the uh, connecting all of DC's future timelines, because as we know, longtime comics fans have been just Given the runaround, really, with the amount of continuities and future timelines, possible timelines, fake timelines that DC has uh, always sprung up, 
So we will see exactly if this sticks the landing. I'm looking forward to it. I love the Legion. Really looking forward to seeing how they tie them into Batman Beyond and Commandi. So um, especially with also talking about what we were saying in Justice League number 31, it seems like it's all kind of coming together and being more interconnected, which I really like. So definitely pick this up. Next up, we have House of X number four of six, written by Jonathan Hickman with Pepe Larraz on art. I just, book's been really good, guys. Just, it really has. It honestly really has. Um, uh, last issue left off with a bit of a cliffhanger with uh, the potential suicide mission by the X-Men going horribly wrong. So we will see exactly what happens in this issue. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Xavier's dream turns deadly for some of his students as they fight back against the humans' plans to eliminate them. Superstar writer Jonathan Hickman continues his reshaping of the X-Men universe alongside young gun artist Pepe Larraz. The future of the X-Men begins here. So yeah, really good stuff. Pepe Larraz's art has been mesmerizing to enjoy so far so i'm really looking forward to this it's going to be a really good issue but the big book of the week the book i have been waiting for forever is finally here it's doomsday clock number 11 of 12 written by jeff johns art by gary frank um just just so so good really looking forward to this this book even though the delays have been plentiful this book was supposed to wrap up two years ago at this point I just cannot wait to see what this book does. Um, we're This is it. This is the penultimate issue. There's only one more issue after this, which will be released in 2025, I'm sure. And I just, I cannot wait to pick this up. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The critically acclaimed series by the renowned team of writer Jeff Johns and artist Gary Frank marches towards its conclusion. In this penultimate issue, the truth behind Rebirth is revealed as Batman searches for the one person he believes can help him save the world, Rorschach. So yeah, um, at this point, we know that um, everyone's pretty much been wiped out. Manhattan's headed to Earth. He's going to fight Superman, and Batman needs to find Rorschach to prevent whatever is going to happen from happening so really looking forward to this once again the most consistently high quality book that dc has been putting out for the past two years and i cannot wait to pick this up so to recap we have old man quill number nine of 12 justice league number 31 uh web of black widow number one of five legion of superheroes millennium number one of two house of x number four of six and doomsday clock number 11 of 12 if i missed anything please feel free to let me know on either of our social medias as well as through email been getting a lot of good feedback on the uh on the comics i've been picking so far so i will continue to hopefully help others discover how good these comics really are and i love getting feedback from you guys and listening to the comics that you're reading right now how much you're loving them uh comics you're disappointed in even because i just love having these conversations so overall really looking forward to this it's going to be a lighter week than last week but that does not mean that the quality is going to be any less especially with books like legion of superheroes house of x and doomsday clock 
And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Please let me know what you thought of everything that we talked about today, whether it's uh, the boys, the comics that we talked about in the Comics Countdown, uh, my personal favorite Marvel comic, Amazing Spider-Man number 33. Uh, What is your favorite Marvel comic? I would love to have that conversation with you talking about favorite stuff, uh, what you think is the best Marvel story. But before we go, we have a segment, a new segment to bring to the podcast, and that is the Geek Explained Mailbag. This is where you send your questions into me, whether it's through either of our social medias at Geek Explained Pod, that's at Geek Explained P O D on Twitter or Instagram, or to my email, geeksplained at gmail.com, because I'm an old man and I still read emails. Uh, we've got two questions. Two questions this week for the inaugural uh, Geeksplained mailbag. Let me pull them up here. First off, we have a question from Amy in Arizona. Amy writes, I would love to hear your theories about what will happen to Spidey in the movies since Disney and Sony had their fallout. What are your insights about what will change? So first off, thank you to Amy for being our very first uh, write-in for the Geek Explained mailbag. Um, We've got some news, I guess, kind of. Uh, we've gotten rumors from several different uh, news sites over the past weekend that Sony and Marvel have uh, come together to renegotiate again. So negotiations are, of course, ongoing. But in the event that they are unable to come to uh, any kind of agreement and Spidey is for sure out of the MCU, I think when it comes to Spider-Man... Um, they're going to want to try and fold him into the Venomverse as quickly as possible, whether that's uh, talking more about alternate realities or, you know, Venom just happens to be in San Francisco while Peter is in New York. Um, we might see some interesting uh, crossovers between those characters. I know a lot of people are interested in Tom Hardy and Tom Holland coming together with their Eddie Brock and their Peter Parker, respectively. Um teaming up to fight carnage i'm not super interested in that but i'm sure that that's exactly what sony's kind of looking at we would also be getting uh i think from what i understand we would be getting kind of revamps on certain characters that would be basically more or less all new to peter's uh i guess uh rolling supporting cast because one of the reasons that some of the characters in the MCU Spidey movies look and sound different from their classic counterparts is because those specific characters, those specific versions, Marvel would have some kind of um, some kind of ownership over. So that's why the MJ in or Zendaya's MJ is not as Uh, comics accurate as the MJs we've seen in the past. Uh, That's why Ned Leeds is more like uh, Ganke from Miles Morales uh, comics because they wanted, specifically through the deal that Sony and Marvel had, those characters would be kind of their own versions of the characters that Marvel would put together. And then 
whenever, if the rights reverted back to Sony completely, like they have at this very moment at the time of recording, uh, Sony could continue on with the regular versions, the classic versions of those characters, which Marvel would not have any ownership of. So uh, once again, it's kind of shady Hollywood politics, which sucks, but it means that we could be returning to a more... Um, Peter-focused narrative, which I personally have enjoyed the Spider-Man films set in the MCU, but I know a lot of people would really rather prefer he kind of be his own guy, his own man, and his own hero, away from everyone else, kind of smaller-scale stories like we saw in the Raimi trilogy or the Andrew Garfield trilogy, or trilogy, there are only two movies, um, but I think it's going to come down to a lot of what uh, Sony really wants to do with Tom Holland because Tom Holland is signed on for two more films. Um, he, regardless of whether he's with M the MCU or not, he's signed on for two more solo films with Sony officially. And so we will just have to see kind of what goes from there. But I'm expecting more classic versions of his supporting cast, um, crossovers with Venom, and maybe we'll finally get that classic Sinister Six team up that we've been waiting for. So we will see. Um, and then number two, our second write-in is from John in uh, California. Shout out to John. Uh, he asked kind of a double-sided question after reading through all of it. So he asked, first off, who is Darkhawk in Marvel? Uh, I thought of it because Game Grumps just mentioned someone named Nighthawk in Marvel, and I was curious. So that's the first question. Um, first off, uh, those are two different characters. I had to look this up, actually, to make sure, because I thought they were two different characters. But um, Marvel and DC have had many hawks all over the place. Um, but the two specifics that he mentioned were Darkhawk and Nighthawk. So I'm going to do a quick little breakdown. Um, if you would like to have a more in-depth breakdown of these characters feel free to let me know but um just as a basic thing for starting off with dark hawk uh the most famous version of the character is christopher powell of earth 616 uh the dark hawks are basically like the antithesis to the nova Corps. they have um bird inspired armor that gives them superhuman strength speed durability agility and reflexes also allowing them to fly their armors are basically they're basically like space iron man armors with a little bit of uh, bird imagery passed into there they're also at times depending on their uh how they're playing into a story they're also sometimes a cult they're sometimes a paramilitary force um but they are a really interesting idea, kind of like having the Sinestro Corps for the uh, Green Lantern Corps. In that way, you would have the Darkhawks for the Nova Corps. So I think if we do end up getting a Nova film, uh, Disney Plus show, whatever, they will definitely make an appearance. Nighthawk is Kyle Richmond. Now, Kyle Richmond has superhuman strength, stamina, durability, agility, reflexes, senses, and depending on who's writing him, has some version of precognitive visions. He can see a little bit into the future. Now, Nighthawk is interesting because he is part of the Squadron Supreme. If you don't know who the Squadron Supreme are, I would love to do an episode of the Squadron Supreme because they're ridiculous, but also because the Squadron Supreme is essentially uh, Marvel's Justice League. They have Hyperion leading the pack, who is basically their 
just one-to-one ratio Superman. And Nighthawk, as you can imagine, is their Batman. He kind of serves that role in the group. We've seen different versions come and go. The current version in uh, Marvel right now is probably... It's close. It's up there with my favorite versions of the Squadron Supreme because they legit have basically Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and The Flash, but they're all new Marvel versions, and it's hilarious how blatant it is. But these characters have had a long history. Uh... Nighthawk specifically has been in almost every single iteration of the Squadron, whether they've been the Squadron Supreme, the Squadron Sinister, or anything in between. So those are kind of like your Cliff Notes versions of those two characters. If you would like to learn more about them, uh, feel free to let me know and I can do full episodes on them as well. And then that also kind of leads into the second part of John's question, which is, uh, if you haven't done this, could you do an underrated hero episode? So I take underrated as... um, probably like lesser known uh, characters who definitely deserve more of a spotlight and I would love to do those episodes so feel free to let me know send in requests on uh, who you would like me to do an episode on whether it's just kind of giving recommended readings or doing a full you know 101 episode about them giving you everything you need to know about those characters feel free to let me know i would love to talk about more lesser known characters like nighthawk uh like the dark hawks like the nova core to be honest nova really i think has dropped out a lot when it comes to mainstream marvel fans he will probably be coming back especially with a new annihilation book coming out soon but I love lesser-known characters, they're some of my favorites, and I would love to do episodes on them, so feel free to let me know. I want to say a big thank you to both uh, John and Amy for being our first uh, questions for the Geeksplain mailbag. Once again, feel free to send in your questions, whether they're to me, uh, whether they're a question about comics, film, TV, or otherwise, uh, to Geeksplain Pod. that's at that's at Geeksplained, P-O-D, on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, also to Geeksplained at gmail.com through email, because I'm an old man, I see everybody emails. Uh, let me know your name and where you're from, whether it's your state, your city, whatever. I would love to do more of these. Uh, I think it's good that we got some questions for our first mailbag. And I'm looking forward to answering more questions in the coming episodes. So... Stay tuned next week for more uh, geek goodness, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.